famous philosopher, Jiminy Cricket. I assume by your laugh, y'all know who Jiminy Cricket is, some of you. Some of you younger folks may not know who Jiminy Cricket is. Just come see somebody afterwards and we'll help you know who Jiminy Cricket is. This will probably help you better understand. Jiminy Cricket once said, always let your conscience be your guide. Man, long before Jiminy Cricket, has had the tendency to trust his heart and let his conscience be his guide. That sounds good, does it not? But there's one major problem with that philosophy. God tells us in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things. How many things is the heart deceitful above? Everything. Out of the heart comes sin. Out of the heart comes evil. The heart is deceitful above all things, and in case you didn't think that was bad enough, listen to what it says next, and is desperately sick. Your heart's sick. Your heart's messed up. My heart's messed up. Who can understand it? The point of it being, our heart is so bad, who could possibly understand his heart and depend upon his conscience? Or depend upon his heart for how he feels about something. But the idea behind that is also, who can understand it? No one but God can understand the heart. John's purpose for writing this letter was to expose false teachers, but more importantly, it was to give assurance to believers. Don't forget that. John's purpose, his primary purpose, is to assure the believer. Two times in our text today, John will say, in verse 19, that he says, By this we shall know. And then in verse 24 he says, and by this we know. We know something as believers. Christians being human are prone to sin, right? Amen. We we have that tendency even as believers. Christians being human, they're prone to sin. And they experience doubt regarding their relationship with God when they sin, right? Remember I told told the the congregation Wednesday night, kind of give them a a snapshot of what we're going to be talking about today. We all, in our relationship, sin, and when we do, there's doubt in our lives as Christians. John knows that in spite of all this, that he has said to sure the true believer, there will be times when we fail, there will be times when we sin, and in our own eyes, we feel condemned, right? We're all there. And as a result, we kind of get depressed and we lack assurance, right? How many of you? Have you ever been there as a Christian? You, you doubt. You, there's this uh, lack of assurance in your life. The problem is a real problem, and it's fairly common in the lives of Christians. How does a Christian deal with doubt? How do you deal with that when it comes? The answer, John says, is knowledge. Not science, now, don't misunderstand me, but John says it's knowledge. And here's what I mean by that. John says the Christian must confront himself with what he knows to be true concerning God and God's work in his life. That's what we know. That's what we go to. In other words, faith, which is the opposite of doubt, faith being based on what we know about God, must be fed, listen carefully, it must be fed by the truth that we know. You want to do away with doubt Uh, bring assurance. John says, feed the truth that you already know with what you already know to be true about yourself in Christ. This is the point that John deals with in the text today. John is speaking to those who are saved, believers, but they're having doubts 
because of their failure to obey God. Their failure to keep God's commands. So that's, that's kind of what's going on. He's dealing with this. Believers deal with this. This is reality, right? We all deal with this. We have doubt because we, we sin and we, we, we do things that we know is not right. Look at your main idea, your handout there. Here's what I believe John is pointing out to us. When our hearts condemn us, and they do, right? When our hearts condemn us, we can be assured and comforted by God's truth and by His Spirit that is in us. So when we are condemned, when we doubt, we can be assured by two things. What we know, God's truth, and by His Spirit that lives within us as believers. Look at verses 19 and 20. And on your handout, here's the outline. A doubting heart and how to reassure it. A doubting heart and how to reassure it. This is assurance here for the doubting heart. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and He knows everything. If you're looking at your handout, I think I give you the sub-point. Assurance is based on the knowledge of God's work in our lives. Assurance. When our hearts condemn us, when they're burdened and there's lack of assurance, assurance is based on the knowledge of the work that God has done in our lives as Christians. Notice there, uh, when John says, by this, in verse 19, he's pointing us back to verses 17 and 18. That's what he's talking By this, go back to 17 and 18. There John talks about what? Love expressing itself. How is that done? It's done through practical Good deeds. In verses 17 and 18, John's point is that self-sacrificing love. You remember the biblical definition of love? Seeking the highest good of another person at your own expense. Kind of that's what I said last week. John's point is that self-sacrificing love identifies who? It identifies the Christian. It identifies the church. Whereas self-centered hatred identifies the world. We talked about that last week. Notice what John says. By this... By loving others in truth, notice what he says, we come to know that we are of the truth. Truth here is the truth of Scripture. It's belief in the truth that marks all who repent and trust in Christ. Believers enjoy assurance based on the presence of a sacrificing love for fellow believers. That's evidence. That you are in the truth. Therefore, that assures your heart when you doubt. Love for other believers, Jesus said, is evidence that you belong to Him. Right? I quoted this verse probably three times last week in the sermon. John 13, 35. By this, what is this? All people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. If you love one another, by this, the world will look at you and go, those must be Christians. You ever had somebody say something to you like that? Um, They see the way you're conducting yourself. Maybe it's not necessarily directing love towards someone, but they see something in your life. And I've had people say, I'm kind of curious, are you a a Christian? That's That's what Jesus is saying. People will know that you belong to me if you have love for one another. John says assurance of salvation can be had and the doubting heart settled. By reflecting on our love for other believers. Genuine, authentic love for others assures us that we are children of God. We have love for others. Doubt comes in our lives when we fail sometimes. He says, look to that that love you have for others. That's evidence that you belong to me. You're in the truth. 
Let's talk about some practical application quickly as it, as it relates to this. When you are troubled by doubts and self-condemnation, don't focus on your failures. Now listen carefully. This can be tricky. Don't focus on your failures. After all, what Christian hasn't failed at times to genuinely love others? Right? We've all failed to love others, right? In particular, the believers. We have failed to do that. Instead, focus on the times that God's love has flowed through you since you become a believer. You love people. There are times when you don't and you begin to doubt. And stay with me here. John said, don't focus. Don't meditate on those. Think about the times when you have loved and that's evidence, Jesus says, that you what? You belong to me. Let these acts of self-sacrifice be evidence that you are the truth and, and stop doubting. Now, Here's a caution. I told you to listen carefully. That doesn't mean that the believer does not examine his failures when you do fail and ask, why was it that I sinned in such a way? What do I need to do to avoid that sin? What do we want to do? We want to beat ourselves up and say, man, I messed up again, instead of saying, what was it that caused me to do that? What do I need to do to avoid that happening again? Thirdly, the believer should learn from his failures. We've heard it all our lives, right? When you fail, learn from your failures. Some of you, some of you, and I put myself in this category sometimes, are perfectionists, right? You're thinking right now, I'm not, but I know someone who is. If you do not perfectly keep God's standard, what do you do? You condemn yourself. And you, you do this even... Even after you confess your sin, right? Some of you are smiling, going, oh, that's me. Confess it, repent, and you just walk around continuously like. John says, no, that's not what you're to do. Fourthly, if you ever think about, if you never think about or look for opportunities to show God's love to others, you're too self focused. So there's another side of the coin as well. If you're a Christian, and you never think about or you never look for opportunities to show God's love to others, you are too self-focused. You're, you're focused on the, our three favorite people, me, myself, and I. Here's an example, a perfect biblical example of what John is telling us here. An example of how we, when we have this doubt, when we sin, and we are all going to fail, Right? Instead of condemning ourselves, we ask the question, what do I need to do? How did this sin creep in? What do I need to do to keep it from happening again? But there have been times when I have obeyed this command. I have loved people. And that's evidence that you belong to Jesus. Here's a perfect example of this. Are you ready? Some of you know this story in the Bible. You've read it time and time again. You've never given any thought to what's really going on here. Peter. You know the story of Peter? I'm going to let you think about this and then I'm going to get to the example in a minute. What did Peter do? He denied Jesus three times, right? So I'm going to give you a little bait there. I'm going to let you hang on to that and then we're going to come to that example, alright? We'll get to that in a minute. But here's an example of how we are too self-focused a lot of times. I want to come back to this. We're too self-focused. We don't look for opportunities to love other people. Here's an example of that. 
We come to church with a mindset that I'm here to take care of who? Me. I want my needs met. Everything. Everything should be the way I want it. You forget why you're here. If you have that attitude. As a matter of fact, you may live every day of your life with that selfish focus. And when others fail to meet your needs, you get what? You get frustrated, right? You kind of get depressed. The believer should come to church and he should live every day with the attitude, Lord, use me to meet someone else's needs. If that were everyone's attitude, what would happen? If I serve you, and you serve him, and he serves her, and it continues, who gets left out? No one. Everyone gets served. When you live that way, you find that Jesus meets your needs. Listen to Luke chapter 6, verse 38. When you live that way, when you do this, when you love others, it comes back to you. Now this is not prosperity gospel. Don't, don't, don't go there. But this is biblical promise. Luke 6.38, listen to what it says. Give, and by the way, the word give there is an imperative, which is a command. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Again, this is not prosperity gospel. You don't give just so you can get back, but the Bible is clear. If you give, if you... If you serve others, it's going to come back to you at some point in time. And you're, you, there's a possibility you may get more than you ever gave. John says here by this, By our loving actions toward others, we will know that we are of the truth. And doing so will give us assurance that we belong to Jesus. Notice on your handout, verse 20. Assurance is based on God's greater knowledge of us. So you have this idea of loving others, serving others, that's evidence. But he says here, verse 20, For whenever our heart condemns us, you notice an interesting word there? Whenever. What does that mean? It's going to happen. And whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and He knows everything. In spite of being justified, in spite of being forgiven, a believer can have unnecessary guilt because his heart condemns him. I disobey God at times. You disobey God at times. I disobey God. Sometimes anger and bitterness come out of nowhere. And I have doubts. I'm thinking, how in the world could I have this bitterness in my heart and this anger in me? And as a result, I I get troubled over that. This is a balancing act. I'm troubled over that, but that's actually a good thing. Now you're saying, wait a minute, I thought you said those things were not to bother us. For those who do not know Jesus, these things do not bother them. But they can trouble the Christian, but they should not condemn us. Does that make sense? They trouble us, but they should not condemn us. The person who is not saved, he never worries about whether he's disobeying God or not. Think back when you were lost. You you didn't worry about that, right? You could have cared less whether you're obeying God. Their hearts do not trouble them. The true believer is troubled over his sin. He's troubled over his failure to obey God, but he is not condemned. 
Is that making sense? We, we're troubled over our sin. We, we know we've done wrong. We look at that and go, how did that happen? What should I do to keep it from happening? But we don't condemn ourselves. John's telling us, whatever our heart may say, God knows us better than we even know ourselves. You ever heard that? God knows you better than you know yourself. Now here's my example. Who was it? Peter. I was just checking to make sure y'all were listening to me earlier. That's why I gave it to you to begin. Secret with me. Peter. What did Peter do? He denied Jesus three times. In John chapter 21, Jesus asked Peter. Now what has Peter done? He's denied Jesus. Remember they came to him. You're one of them. No. Three times he denies Jesus. After Jesus is resurrected, we have this situation. One more time. What did Peter do? He denied Jesus. Jesus asked Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Peter said, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. And Jesus replied, what? Tend my lambs. Peter's done what? He's sinned. He's failed. He's denied Jesus. And Jesus is doing what? You love me, Peter. Serve me. Take care of my lambs. Take care of my people. Then Jesus repeated the question in the next verse. Simon, son of Jonah, do you... Do you love me? Peter answered, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And what did Jesus say? Shepherd my sheep. The second time he's told him, You're mine. You've denied me. I'm, rest- I'm restoring you. There's this sense of forgiveness. Now, do what? I'm not condemning you, Peter. Go serve me. Peter said, Lord, it's, 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 the third time, excuse me, I'm about to forget the third time. Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And at this point, Peter was kind of... We read it and we're thinking, he's, he's getting frustrated with being asked this question. But Peter's actually grieved over his sin. And he says, Lord, are you ready? You know all things. You know that I love you. What did Peter do? He denied Jesus. But Peter's saying, Lord, you know everything. You know all things. You know that I love you. And what does Jesus do for the third time? Go serve me, Peter. And in fact, Peter said, Lord, as far as I know, my own heart, in my own heart, I love you. But you, you know me better than I know myself. And I'm appealing to what I know to be true about myself in relation to you. Do you see that? A believer, a follower of Christ, an apostle, one of the twelve, denies his Lord. And Jesus, what? Forgives him. Doesn't condemn him, but tells him to do what? Go serve me, Peter. Is that a good example for us? We sin, we do, we disobey God, we come and we confess that, and we go, Lord, you know I love you. I, I know that you love me. And God says, that's right. I know all things. You belong to me. Yes, you disobeyed. Forgiven. Now go serve me. Jesus can tell that to Peter who denied him. Can't he do that for us? When we sin, we fall. Here's the application. If you've sinned, listen carefully. Be burdened over your sin. I'm not saying you dismiss it. And by all means, confess that sin. But don't allow yourself to go on in guilt and in condemnation. Because who doesn't condemn you over that sin? Your Lord doesn't condemn you. Jesus doesn't condemn you over that sin. I want to make sure I've got this... As clear as it can possibly be. As clear as mud, as they would say. We're going to sin, right? 
We're going to fall. We're going to stumble. But we confess our sins. We acknowledge those sins. And our Savior does not condemn us. But what does He do? I know your heart. I know who you are. I know you've turned to me from your sin and trusted in me. So therefore, go and serve me. Don't go on the guilt. Don't be, con- don't be in condemnation. Here's the point. For the true believer, assurance is based on the knowledge of how God has already worked in your life. He saved you even though He knew, listen to me, He knew every sin that you would ever commit in the future. He all, The day He saved you, He knew every sin from that point on that you would ever commit. He wants all of His children to be assured of the great love He has for us. God knows everything. God recognizes that even in believers' failures, there's evidence of a relationship with Him as their Father. He doesn't minimize or disregard our disobedience, but He knows that the love we profess is certain evidence that we belong to Him. Remember Peter? What was the one thing Peter kept telling Jesus? Lord, You know I love You. But what had Peter done? He had denied Him. I want to be careful here and not give a a false assurance. What John is saying here is not for those who practice sin. You remember those folks he talked about? Those who habitually live a life of sin? That's not who he's talking about. For those who practice sin, guess... I don't want to say guess what. For those who practice sin... You stand condemned before God. Because He does not know you. You can't be like Peter and say, Lord, you know I love you because you don't love Him. Loving others as we've been loved by Jesus, John says, assures us that we're in the truth. Even when we don't love perfectly, God says, trust me. Don't trust your heart. Trust what you know to be true about yourself in me. Now look at verses 21 through 24. The blessing of an uncondemned heart. The blessings of an uncondemned heart. John says in verse 21, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Notice what he refers to them, that, that term, beloved. It's a word of concern and compassion for those who are struggling with a, a condemned heart. Then John follows that up with an encouragement. Beloved, If our heart condemns us, we have confidence before God. Church, does our heart condemn us at times? If our heart condemns us, we have what before God? Confidence. John, inspired by the Spirit of God, is telling the believer, when you trust the judgment of your heart, your conscience to God who saved you, the God who knows everything, when you do that, your confidence moves from your experience and feelings to God's Word and what He says about you. Here's a verse that will help you better understand that. Romans chapter 8 verse 1. Don't turn there, but listen. Romans chapter 8 verse 1. Talking to the believer now. Listen. There is therefore now no condemnation. How much condemnation? None. Zero. There is no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ Jesus. In being born again. Knowing Christ as Savior. How much condemnation is there, church? None. You know what I do with that? I go, well, if God says there's none, then why do I say there is? 
That word condemnation means to be judged and found guilty, and as a result of your guilty judgment, there's a penalty that needs to be paid. Guess who took the penalty? Sunday school answer, Jesus. Jesus took the judgment. Therefore, if you are in Christ, you're no longer condemned. God doesn't look at you and judge you when you fail and say, punishment? But what does He do? He looks at Jesus and says, punishment. Jesus paid it all. Then John goes on to tell the believer that as God's children, we have confident access to God. He tells us of two blessings that result from this confidence. Notice in verse 22. Confidence before God gives us the blessing of answered prayer. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. Now, I need to deal with something here that's very important in relation to this verse. Notice what it says. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him. That verse gets taken out of context a lot of times, does it not? Just ask, and God's He's obligated. He's the divine bellhop. You just ring the bell, and He brings it. Now, I'm exaggerating. They don't say that, but they get very close. Based on this verse, there are many who, who, who have devised this false view or doctrine of prayer. It's very important to combine this verse with the rest of Scripture. Let Scripture help you interpret Scripture. The Bible tells us that prayer in 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 is to be according to His will. That makes a difference, does it not? My prayers will be according to His will. In John chapter 16, my prayers should be in the name of Jesus. And in James chapter 4, verses 2 through 3, my prayers should be for God's glory. John's words should be combined with the words of Jesus in the Gospel of John in chapters 14, 15, and 16. You cannot pull prayer anywhere else unless you go to John 14, 15, and 16 and look how that all comes together. Jesus says there in those three chapters, He says it three times. Whatever you ask in My name, that will I do. Now a lot of people just stop right there, right? Whatever you ask in My name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified. Oh, what I, what I need to be asking for should be what? It should glorify the Father. If you ask anything in My name, I will do it. And there's where a lot of people go, oh, Jesus is obligated. All i got to do is ask, and He's going to do it. Here's what you need to understand. To pray in Jesus' name does not mean that you can pray selfish prayers and tag Jesus' name on at the end, and you get whatever you ask. We're guilty of that, right? Lord, bless me. Give me a new car, new job, a lot of clothes, uh, a relationship in Jesus' name. We think if we throw that on the end, that kind of seals the deal, right? Jesus is up. Whatever you ask in my name, that's what I'm going to do. To pray in Jesus' name is to pray in agreement with what His name represents. And His name represents purpose, right? In Matthew chapter 6, the Lord's Prayer. We're familiar with that. Listen, remember they come to Jesus and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. And in verse 10, here's what He says. You're to pray this. Are you ready? Your kingdom come. Some of us are praying for what? Our kingdom to come. Your kingdom come. 
Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Did you pick up on that? Your kingdom, your will. Not my kingdom, not my will. That, that affects your prayers, does it not? In John chapter 15, Jesus says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatsoever you will and it will be done unto you. Our prayers are answered, listen carefully, because our will is in agreement with God's will. If you ask something that is not in agreement with God's will, guess what? I don't even think he... Well, he hears it. He just doesn't acknowledge it to do anything about it. Look at verse 22 again. John gives the reason we receive whatever we ask. Ah, oh, so there's something else that we need to be looking at when we read this verse. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him. What's the next word? Because... We do what? We keep His commandments and we do what pleases Him. So there's there's a condition here to whatever we ask for as to whether we receive it or not. It's because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. God does not answer the prayers of those who are disobedient. Those who do not keep His commandments. To do what pleases God here refers to living with a Godward focus. Seeking to please Him. Look at your life. Is, is my life... Godward focus? Am I seeking to please Him? Keeping His commands and doing what pleases God are the context for the promise. Whatever we ask from Him, we receive because we keep His commandments and we do what pleases Him. We pray according to His will. And what is His will? His kingdom come. His will be done. Here's a way we can apply this. Ask yourself the question. I, I do this quite often. When you pray for things, do you pray with a heart that is focused on using those things for God's glory? That'll make a difference, will it not? Do you pray for those things with a heart that says, God, these things will be used for your glory? Do you pray for a job? Do you pray for children? Do you pray for a wife, a husband, to go to college? Do you pray to the end that these things will be used for God's glory? As a Christian, your whole life is about living for God and His glory. So everything we do, everything we pray for, everything we desire, we should ask ourselves, Your kingdom come, Your will be done for Your glory. Is this really the way we pray for things when we ask for things? Now again, don't leave here saying the pastor said I shouldn't pray for things. I I didn't say that, did I? But what's the test for what we pray for? Am I praying or am I motivated to use this for God's glory? Do I want these things for God? Charles Spurgeon was a um, pastor in England, the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Listen to what he says. The man of obedience is the man whom God will hear. Because his obedient heart leads him to pray humbly and with submission. For he feels it to be his highest desire that the Lord's will should be done. Does he not desire and ask for exactly what God intends? Now listen to what he says. How can a prayer shot from such a bow ever fail to reach its target? Look at verse 23. God, uh, excuse me, John sums up God's command, commandments in one command. But it has two points. And this 
is His commandment. That we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and we love one another just as He has commanded us. 1 John says, Believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. To believe in the name of Jesus is to place your trust, your faith in Him, and only in Him, and all that He is. Jesus is the Son of God who become a man. He's sinless, a sinless human. He perfectly atones for our sin, and He's the promised Savior of the world. That's the Jesus you are to believe in. You trust all of Him, not part of Him. You trust the biblical Jesus or you trust no Jesus at all. And we need to be careful in our day and time when people say, I know Jesus. You know what I begin to ask people? Do you know the Jesus of the Bible? That makes a big difference, does it not? Because we can develop a Jesus of our own making, right? And they kind of look at you strange like, well, isn't that where the name Jesus comes from? John says, secondly, and love one another, just as I, excuse me, just as he has commanded us. Once again, John's words, John's words are exactly the words of Jesus. A new commandment I give to you, Jesus said, that you love one another. How are we to love one another? Just as, what does that mean? In the same way, I have loved you. You also are to love one another. How did Jesus love us? He was all in, was He not? He gave it all. He sacrificed it all. And going back to last week, He sacrificed it for people who didn't like Him, right? Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are My disciples if you have love for one another. Look at verse 24. Here's the second blessing of abiding, excuse me, the second blessing, the blessing of abiding relationship through the Spirit. Verse 24. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given to us. Now, previously John's, up to this point, he's spoken about our abiding in Jesus. But this is the first time He's mentioned God abiding in us through His Spirit. It says here, obedience, keeping His commandments is the condition of abiding relationship with Jesus. And I told you the word abiding means ongoing fellowship with Jesus. That's what He's talking about, abiding. Keeping His commandments is the condition of abiding relationship with Jesus. As we walk in obedience to Jesus, we enjoy close fellowship with Jesus and He with us. Obedience, keeping His commandments, is evidence of the fact that we are abiding in Him and Him in us. The one who abides in God keeps. He has a habit. He has a pattern of life of obedience to God's commandments. Did I say he would never fail or never sin? No, but his life is a pattern. It's not a practice of sin. His life is a pattern of obedience to Christ. Every now and then, he stumbles and falls. Look at the last part of verse 24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, here it is again, we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given to us. John says that... Yet another way of knowing that God truly lives in us is by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. That's another assurance. That's another blessing. It says, and by this, what is this referring to? Keeping His commandments by believing in Jesus 
Right? We know that He abides in us. How does He do that? By His Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who empowers us to live righteously and to love others. John is saying that the Spirit's presence in our life is displayed in our life and in our conduct. So in order to ease the condemning heart, here's what John's saying. Look for evidence of the Spirit's working. And particularly whether He's enabling us to believe in Jesus, to obey His commands, and to love our brothers. Those are the three things he says. Look at your life. This is how you know that the Spirit of God dwells within you. You believe in Jesus. You have a desire to obey His commands. And you love other brothers. And you love lost people as well. That's evidence that you belong to Him. And when your heart condemns you, He says, look at those three things. If they're evident in your life, look at Peter. Go serve him. Notice the words, I can't let this go by. Given to us. What does it say there? And by this we know that He abides in us by His Spirit. The Spirit is given to us. This looks to the past, at the time of salvation, when you trusted in Christ, in the moment in time when you believed the Gospel, when you repented and trusted in Jesus, that, listen, that is when you received the Holy Spirit of God. Not after, not sometime in the future. You've heard that differently, right? You get a little bit now, and then there's a second blessing that comes later on. That's not in the Bible. The moment of conversion, you get the Spirit of God. And by the way, you get all the Spirit you need at the moment of salvation. Now listen, we grieve and we quench the Spirit, right? Grieving Him means when we sin, we grieve Him and we quench. What does quench mean? It's like a fire, you throw water on it, kind of dampens it, puts it out. And the Bible often, or in particular one place, it calls us to be filled with the Spirit, right? But we already have the Spirit. God has given His Spirit to repenting, trusting in Jesus' sinners. At the moment of salvation, you are given the Spirit of God. And those evidences in your life, those things you do in your life, is evidence that the Spirit of God lives within you. So John says, we know. Don't condemn yourselves. Don't judge yourselves but look to what you know to be true about yourself. You've trusted in Jesus. You seek to obey Him even though you mess up. And you love others. That's evidence that the Spirit of God is within you. That You know. You don't need to condemn yourselves. So here's how we conclude this. The first and primary thing that secures assurance for us is always faith in Christ. If you've trusted in Jesus, God has promised you eternal life. He has promised never to allow you to be snatched out of His hand. And I know this is something else we hear, that we can lose our salvation. Just let me say that God wouldn't be God if He could lose something. Amen. Thank you. And I understand there's a term that we hear a lot I've quit using it. Once saved, always saved. I don't use that no more. Here's what I say. If saved, always saved. There's a big difference, right? Some people like to live any way they want to and say, I know what the Bible says, preacher. It says once saved, always saved. No, I don't. It says if saved, you're always saved. 
Rest in that. You've trusted in Christ. God will not... John chapter 10 tells us that nothing can snatch us out of His hand. Nothing can get us out of the hand of God. A man once told D.L. Moody that he was worried because he didn't feel saved. You ever had somebody say that to you? Don't feel saved? Maybe you said it. Moody asked him, was Noah safe in the ark? And the man responded, absolutely. Well, Moody said, what made him safe? His feeling or the ark? Here's what I want you to understand. We're familiar with Noah and the ark, right? You know what the ark really points us to? What happened to Noah and his family? What did God say? Believe me, there's a flood coming. Trust me. Build this ark, and when the flood comes, you go inside, I'll shut the door, and you'll be safe. You know what the ark's a picture of? Jesus. He's pointing us to Jesus. And listen, when the people went in the ark, God slammed the door shut. And they were safe, right? How do we know they were safe? Because point in time come when they got off. In Genesis chapter 7, verse 7, knowing his family, it says, went into the ark to escape the waters. They went into the ark to do what? To escape the waters. When you go into Jesus, you escape condemnation. The point is this. If you're in Christ, it's not your feelings that save you from God's judgment. It's Christ who saves you. Faith puts you on the ark. But make sure you're on the ark. Make sure that you know Jesus. The second thing that secures assurance is this. Ask yourself. Is there a consistent pattern of life in which I obey the commands of Jesus? If the answer is yes, then there's evidence that the Holy Spirit's in your life. You know why that's evidence of the Spirit working in your life? Because you can't do it without the Spirit in your life. And lastly, remember who you are in Him through Christ and by the Spirit. Love others the way you have been loved by Jesus. Obey His commands. Please Him out of gratitude for the Gospel and for who He is and what He's done. These are the truths that heal a condemning heart. Let's pray.